Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra-wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. All right, welcome to the 27th episode of the Wealth Well Done podcast, where we go after the tactical, practical, and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. Last week, we had Thomas Castelli on with Tax Smart Insiders, and he uh, spent most of the episode really digging into this whole thing called real estate professional status or reps. That's a incredibly powerful um, opportunity for someone if you are looking for other ways to maximize wealth, as well as some of those uh, elusive tax secrets that that seemingly the wealthy people have, and, and how do you figure out how to lower your taxable income while you still make more money? Today, we are actually going to kind of hit on all three pillars, and so I'm going to do a brief refresh uh, for those of you who haven't been listening since the beginning here. When we talk about tactical, that is the very specific advice um, as it as pertains to financial situations. This might be taxes, this might be estate planning, it might be investments or investment management. Uh, when we talk about practical, that is those are things that how this all applies to your life. This could be the way that money works inside marriage, the way that uh, how many hours you're working, or how do you avoid raising spoiled children. And then when we get into the spiritual side of things, this is really dealing with what the Bible has to say about money. And the Bible has so much to say about money. It's one of the main topics talked about in the Bible. And so um, we're just talking about biblical applications to uh, our financial principles, and obviously a big one of that is stewardship. So today, the topic we're going to do is how to value your financial advisor. And so, like I said, it's going to really dig into all three of those principles there. Quick disclaimer, as always, the show is intended to be informational and educational. It's not meant to be uh, financial advice to your specific situation. So please consult your own um, your own financial team to decide how any or all this should apply to you. So we're going to start with a conversation that I recently had with a friend of mine who is also a, a client and he, he we, we've got a, we've got a good relationship we go way back and so we're okay to be direct and honest with each other as well as um, a way that might be, seem a little confrontational to to someone from the outside and he started the conversation with he goes help me understand why I should pay you to manage my money for me instead of putting it into into a Vanguard fund and I laughed and said, okay, well, if we're, that's how we're, that's how this conversation is going. Um, here are your, you gave me a direct question. Here are your direct answers. Um, one, we manage your, we manage your emotions better than you do. Two, we do more research into the funds we select uh, for you. Three, we have the d- discipline to keep you diversified. And four, no rich person will ever tell you they made it there by saving their 1, 1.5% annual fee. Real quick on that note, annual fee that's uh, like 0.8% to 1.8% is kind of standard across across most of the industry. You'll find some um, as low as 0.5% with some firms and uh, 0.5% might be more standard as the net worth increases as well. Um, so as, as you get higher assets, your your fee that you pay tends to go down. But in general, I'm using 1.5% as your benchmark and hopefully you're paying a little bit less than that. So back to those those four points here. We manage your emotions better than you. There is a there's a lot that's going. We're going to get into this a little bit later here with some some studies to back this up. But as an individual, 
when you feel responsible for making the investment decisions um, on your behalf without someone else, you're going to tend to act uh, out of the two main emotions that the investments tend to bring up, which is greed and fear. And acting out of greed and fear are uh, th- that's a very dangerous, dangerous way to make investment decisions. We'll get into that a little bit more later of, of what the uh, actual numbers look like of, of, of people doing that. Um, we do more research into the funds that, that we select. Uh, obviously, if we're, if we're this is our job, and if we are making making recommendations to a uh, wide swath of clients, you would expect us to have done more research into the the investment choices that we um, that we've chosen. And and most people are not when they decide, hey, I think I'm going to buy this fund here. It's normally a little bit more hearsay, and they've you know they think that if they don't do this, the whole fear of missing out is is going to kick in. So. Um, there's that side of this. There's so much more under the hood than just what you see on the return. You know, when most people are choosing the 401k investments that they want to make, if they're if they are being a real DIY on this and they're going ahead and creating their portfolio, not just using the target date funds, then often you're looking at expenses and the performance that it's had over the last year or the last three or five years. And there's not much else to to dig into beyond that um, that you see. But the reality is there is so much more information. Uh, behind the scenes that you should understand before you're making that type of investment decision. And, you know, just apply that to anything. You wouldn't choose to invest into a uh, direct investment into a private equity company. You wouldn't choose to purchase real estate or some other large uh, investment decision based off of such little criteria. We have the discipline to keep you diversified. This is an interesting one. So when you think about diversity, there's, uh, there's some good marketing pieces out there that I've seen before and I've, I've used with clients that uh, diversification often feels like losing. And that might be if you had invested, you know, during this last decade in the tech, uh, in, in the, in the tech industry, specifically the, the FANG stocks, you saw massive, massive growth there, outsized growth compared to the rest of the market for sure. Um, and as you did that, if you were diversified, you'd look at this one portion of your portfolio. You might have even been invested into the FANG, one of the FANG ETFs, which would have been really impressive. Um, but if you, were you compared that to the rest of your portfolio, you would feel like the rest of your portfolio is standing still. And what's the point of that while these other stocks are just doing so well? Um, the flip side of that is, so so when you're diversified, you have certain portions of your portfolio that are going to underperform others. And therefore, it it take it kind of dulls the win in, in a way, but it also dulls the loss. The problem is emotionally, you feel you feel it more when you're missing out on those gains and if you're losing, if, if you have a diversified portfolio, when the market drops, then even though you dropped, you had the FANG stocks would have dropped a lot more than other portions of the market. And so your loss would have been significantly less as well. And so diversity over over time, diversity almost always wins out there. The the difference is if you're losing, you feel like if you only if you lost 16% instead of 24%. You still lost sixteen percent, so it still feels like a loss to you. You're not recognizing the eight percent spread there between um, how those other stocks did and and how your diversified portfolio went. So, in general, diversity um, is a is also from a disciplinary standpoint is a great way to um, smooth out the ride of your portfolio. So then we so we went to the next one here. He said, "All right." He said, "Well, my father-in-law has invested in the CTF. That's at thirty-three percent on the year." And my account's only, you know, my account with you is only up 25%. Help me justify that. And then this is a very common uh, 
uh, common issue that you have here. And so he's, you know, I'm at, I'm at the barbecue or wherever I'm talking to friends and, you know, they tell me that blank, you know, my, my, my fund is, uh, is up this much here. Here's how I'm doing. They normally don't say, man, you know, I've got this other portion of my portfolio that's tanking or whatever else. Obviously people want to celebrate the wins and people like to uh, sometimes embellish the, the, uh, you know, brag a little bit more about how a certain piece of their portfolio might be doing. But to, to the point here, we said, all right, he's like, you know, this ETF that he has is up 33%. I'm only up 25%. Help me justify that. And we said, all right, well, what's the ETF? So we looked it up and we compared apples to apples. We went over a, a two-year period here and said, well, over the two years, since then we had invested in, you know, his, his account, um, that fund, that ETF that he's talking about that's up 33% this year is still down 9% because it had such a large drop last year. Whereas my friend there is close to breaking even over that same period. So even though he's trailing by 8% year to date, overall, he's still up, you know, just about, he's up almost 8% the other way. Um, so anyways, that whole thing of don't just react when you hear something like that, do a little bit more digging into this. The the market and the media, they're, they're meant to play on those emotions of greed and fear. And they, they kind of lure you into joining the herd um, with this. There's all sorts of shows out. There's all sorts of stock recommendations that are all out there to kind of lure you into joining the herd, making more transactions than what you should be doing. And so that is where uh, this Dalbar study has been really impactful. So Dalbar, D-A-L-B-A-R, um, they put, publish a study every year about uh, investor behavior. And so for 2021, they found that the S&P earned 28.71%, whereas the average equity investor only earned 18.39%. So a major drop there. Then you look at 2022, equity investors lost 21.17% on average, whereas the S&P 500 lost 18.1%. And you rarely ever see less than a 3% spread. You know, the year before was even greater, but you rarely ever see less than a 3% spread between how the average investor does compared to just the S&P 500. And so from that standpoint, it's important to understand when you are making a lot of uh, trades, there there's so many, again, there's so many factors at play that you probably wouldn't understand. Uh, you can go back to earlier episode where Tom Costello was on and Tom's been in the hedge fund industry for, I think, 33, maybe even 34 years now. And and Tom has seen all the ways that the the retail traders who are the, the people, you know, at home behind their behind their computer working on their trades, you know, trying to do some research into their own stock picks or doing what, you know, someone from work told them to do just how hedge funds can really prey on those people and it's not they're not doing anything wrong or illegal but they're letting those people buy when the market's going up and sell when it's going down and they're there to to capture that and so everyone knows you're supposed to buy buy low and sell high but rarely does that ever actually work out out that way over a over you know a, a wider um, sample of data. It's normally, you know, you might get lucky once or twice, but normally with this people, they, they try doing this. Maybe they guess right. Maybe they guess wrong. But if they guess right, eventually they, they start to get a little overconfident, start to guess wrong there. Cause there's just so much that's beyond your control. All of that said, 
I'm certainly a fan of investing into index ETFs. I want to make that clear. Just I'm talking about the diversity and, and kind of some, some downsides in, into investing with these ETFs. I just think that those investments are typically better off invested and left for the long haul. Um, you should, you should absolutely pay attention to them and you want to do a lot of due diligence on the, on the front end to make sure that you're not going to want to change the investment just because it's underperforming six months after you've put it in. Um, but, Holding those for a longer term is is I typically the the best move. I I just tend to look at it as as the stock market and ETF should be a, a portion of your assets and not typically the whole thing. It depends on the person here. Um, there's a there's a financial advisor that I was speaking with who was just recently named I think the Forbes number two or number three uh, best financial advisor in the country, and he was talking about how he views the stock market as an inflation-adjusted holding tank. And I think that makes a lot of sense there. The, you know, the market is a great way to kind of maintain uh, where you're at um, and it's a great way to, to build build wealth long-term. But there are other ways for, for people who um, who have the, you know, the time and the and the talent to do so. I, I typically recommend another way. At number one, the, the best place to invest, I would say, is the kingdom of God. And you know, there are returns that come better there than any other place possible. And so, um, and they, they have guarantees on them. The guarantees, maybe in this life, maybe not. I'm not a prosperity gospel teacher by any means, but the, the guarantees are certainly there for, for heaven. And uh, so I think that that's the best place to invest. Uh, but I also don't think that's the only place you invest. The second best place I would love to see people invest is in themselves. And when you invest in them into yourself, whether that is uh, getting a further furthering your education with another degree or just another um, certification, and something that helps you to bring more value to your employer and make more money, or investing into yourself in terms of starting a business and trying to um, trying to really go out there and see what you can do, you know, to bring value to the marketplace. I think that that is a phenomenal way to do it. After that, I look at real estate as a long-term wealth-building strategy. Real estate is a great way to build wealth long-term, not a great way to get rich quick. So you certainly can get rich quick there, but anything you're doing that's trying to get rich quick normally has a much higher uh, chance of underperforming than it does to, of actually uh, achieving your goals there. So it's something that is, is often overlooked, but real estate is a phenomenal way to, to build wealth long-term. And then for some, you know, it also makes sense to look at investing into um, what the industry calls alternative assets. We like to call them direct assets, direct investments, um, and use that as a piece of someone's portfolio. And this might, you know, this is dependent on your net worth. It's dependent on uh, other individual characteristics and you know, what your risk appetite or risk tolerance may be. But, you know, we, we've done investments here into oil oil and gas opportunities, um, pharmaceuticals and biotech. We've got a Pringle Robotics is a robotics company here in Peoria that is, that is doing amazing stuff. And so these are those are companies into what are considered maybe growth equity or um, venture capital type companies. You have, um, we we're in the middle of, from a real estate standpoint, we're in the middle of uh, raising for a, a resort that we're developing down off the island, off on an island off the coast of Belize. Um, we do a lot with REM Capital. Robert Rissenthaler was on here earlier in the multifamily space. And uh, so you have other real estate opportunities like that. 
to do that you can do passively as well as obviously doing real estate that you own and manage yourself directly. And so if you want, if you want information on, on those, you know, that, that'd be something we'll probably do some podcasts on that later, but if you want information on um, ways to get access to those type of direct investments, then you can reach out to us on our website or you can email me directly. Our website is storehouseassets.com or you can email me at eric, E-R-I-C, at storehouseassets.com. Uh, but back to my friend regarding this question of why he is paying someone else to manage his money. There's this other piece. He's also, he's gotten a ton of financial advice from me over the years, uh, which has helped him to feel, A, more confident in the investments and in his, his ability to select his own investments. So obviously, he, we helped get him to that point. And if he left from there, that'd be just fine too. Um, but there's also, there's so many other pieces to this. And when you talk about how do you value your financial advisor, this should come into, into play. And this, this is not a, you know, a manipulative ploy to, to get you to uh, move all of your assets over to us at Storehouse. Not by any means. What it is is to help you evaluate what, what are you getting and are you, are you getting what you're paying for? Um, if you, because there are, if, if all your investment advisor does is just create a portfolio for you and invest, well, you can, you can quick search into Google and, you know, investment portfolio for a 42 year old with a high risk tolerance and you'll get, you'll get all the investment advice you could ever want there. Um, the, the difference is then if you're trying to, you know, what applies to your situation. And so for my friend and I, we then spent the next 45 minutes of that meeting talking about real estate. And we dug into how, you know, helping him decide uh, how much property he should be buying, where he should be buying it, how much leverage to use. You know, I don't want him um, being over levered and, and being a spot where if a 2008 um, housing, you know, downturn happens, that he is going to be at risk of having the bank come and take his, uh, his property anymore. Um, so, so making sure that we use the right leverage, understanding where we're at and, and, and the, what stage in this economic cycle we're in, um, to use leverage appropriately. And then also how much cash to keep on hand. He's going to do a short-term rental. And I'm saying with, with this market and where you're looking at doing it, the competition inside the short-term rental space has heated up so much that I want you to make sure that you are fully prepared to pay the rent for the first year. Or excuse me, pay the mortgage and the expenses for the first year and not counting on, you know, I bought a short-term rental and, you know, three months in, it's it's already paying for itself um, completely. That it can happen. It absolutely can happen. We've done that, but market timing right and other conditions right. Um, but right now where it's at, I wouldn't want someone to make sure that they've got extra cash on hand and they're, they're being a little bit more conservative in their real estate purchases right now. Um, we then dug it deep into taxes and savings and we talked about their personal budget, um, you know, how they needed to, you know, that they're making more money now. And so we really need to make sure we're taking advantage of these higher earnings um, by by saving and accumulating more instead of just spending first and then and then saving what's left over at the end because you you obviously know how that goes. So that's not how the wealthy do it. The wealthy don't spend first and then save last. They, you know, our ideal version is you give first, save second, spend third. And so you know, again, th- those are things that you should be talking about with your financial advisor. Those are, and if they say, "Hey, I stay in my lane," you know, I don't talk about taxes. Well, there's there's truth to that. They they don't, you know, a lot of them don't want to talk about taxes. Um, their compliance department may not want them to do that, but they have they have stuff that they can offer, and and maybe it's bringing them in with your CPA as well on a call. That's something we do with you know with our clients is we're 
we will meet with your CPA. We are not CPAs. We view ourselves as a kind of a tax liaison for a client or tax max, a CPA maximizer to help our clients uh, get the most out of their CPA, but not to take the place of one. And so that's something that hopefully your financial advisor is doing with you. And that's a great place for them to bring value as well. And then the the last one that we did here is we kind of ended ended the conversation with a, a gut punch. And <laughs> I like I like being challenging, a little bit direct. And so I said, Amara, so, you, so you've you put me under the microscope here, and and you know, kind of put me to the test. Let me let me flip the script and do it back to you. How much of your income are you giving to God? And that was, uh, and he, you know, he handled it maybe like you'd expect, where he's like, ah. Yeah. Yeah. We, we know we need to be doing that more and we've been meaning to, we just haven't got around to it yet. And so that's a, it's such a common thing that people say that. And so I want to point, point you back to the Bible with that and say, all right, you know, there's so many wonderful scriptures that talk about money. Uh, you should pay close attention to the ones that are extra challenging as well as the ones that, that are maybe a little bit softer that talk about the idea of giving with a cheerful heart. And so I'm going to read a few of those here for you right now. Um, of those that are much, you know, they're, they're very common when someone first starts singing about scriptures that have to do with money. When it comes to the tithe, one of the most common ones quoted is in Malachi. This is the last book of the Old Testament here. And we'll start with Malachi 3.8 and say, will man rob God that you are robbing me? You say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with the curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. This is God's speaking through the prophet Malachi to the Israelites. And so I want to be clear, we've had other people come on and help us understand, you know, where is the tithe actually at? And that the tithe does not stand today as a as a rule here. It's still a great principle, but does not is not a law the way it was in the Old Testament. We talked about the tithe being a actually a land tax as well, and the idea that Jesus broke the curse. So I want to make sure that you know when you take in an Old Testament scripture, you balance that through the lens of Jesus um, with this. But verse 10 then goes on to this is one, this is a, such a powerful verse here. It says, this is God saying, bring the full tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. And pretty powerful when God says, go ahead and try me. So put me to the test says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing, pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. In other versions say, you know, blessing you so much that you won't have enough room to receive it. And so that's a, that's an incredibly powerful one. In Luke chapter six, verse 38, He's saying, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. The idea that if you give generously, you're going to reap generously. And another one that we'll do here is in 2 Corinthians, starting with 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Chapter 9, verse 8 of the same book, 2 Corinthians, then says, well, we'll start with verse 6 here. The, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Um, Jay Link was on here a few episodes back talking about that word cheerful is actually the it's God loves a hilarious giver, and and so you should go back and check that one out if you're if you feel like you're you're being spoken to a little bit on terms of how you're handling your money and or ideally how you're handling God's money as a steward. Um, let that one 
go back and, and, and check out the episodes with Jay Link. But then verse 8 goes on to say, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So, so much to, to unpack there. Um, but the idea of don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. So don't give because I'm challenging you here. Um, don't be give because, you know, your, your uh, pastor recently gave us a good speech about the tithe. Those things are absolutely true, but God wants you to give because you want to give. And the, the purpose of giving is you give with a, you give because you trust God with your assets. And so if you're needing more money, you're finding reasons that you need more money. Um, the idea of giving is saying it, it's, it's irrational. And, and so much inside faith is faith is often irrational. And, and that, that's the beauty behind that, that I trust you, God, with my finances. And so I'm going to give even though I need. And so, um, God wants you to give because you want to give. You're not giving just to get either, by the way. You're giving because you, you give out of a cheerful heart. But then when you receive, and it says that he, he's able to make all grace abound to you. And so that, so you can have in all sufficient, you have all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So when it's talking about this, so you, now that you're receiving, the purpose of you receiving isn't so you can, you can store it up in your, in your own account and do nothing with it. It isn't so you can go consume all of it. Not that there's anything wrong with you consuming some of the assets that, that God has given you, but the idea being as you, as you receive, you're receiving so you can go abound to every good work. So you can go give to other good works. When you find, you know, great missionaries and other people who are, who are making um, great strides for the kingdom that need funding, you can you can give to those other uh, causes. And so with that, when you look at just, you know, this is kind of a brief episode on, on the how to find value, you know, value your financial advisor. They should absolutely be hitting the, the investments piece of this. They should be talking about that. You should understand how you're invested and why you're invested there. Um, but then there's, there's so much more to your financial picture than than just the stock market. And so a lot of investors or a lot of advisors will say that they are holistic financial planners. Um, that can mean a wide range of things. So you don't just take that and you know, dig in. What does it actually mean? What what do you and when they say, well, we're interested in you know in selling your life insurance, okay, that's that's good. Can be. Um, careful if they if you're 35 still full of student loan debt and they try to sell you whole life insurance, that's not the right, right product for you at that point. Um, but looking at uh, you know, they're going to look at some, some things that they get paid for, but estate planning is typically something that advisors don't get paid for. Um, but it's a way that they can help you. And same thing with, um, with taxes as well. And so that AUM fee that you're paying them, that assets under management, that 1%, 1.5%, whatever you're paying your advisor, um, you want to find out what all you're getting for that. And are they going to speak into your life with other financial decisions as you look at what to do with your business, how to, handle um, a career move or or other things along those lines. So make sure you're getting what you're paying for out of your financial advisor. And then a good one, a good one is absolutely worth the, the fee that they're charging you because they, they can, their, the, your time with them should be able to help you make better financial decisions that, that make a much bigger impact than the, again, whatever that fee is that they're charging you. Hope this is valuable to you. If so, if, if you find a value with this, you know, we always say, please share it or please subscribe. And if it's not valuable to you, or if you've got other things that, you, that you'd like to hear us talk about, let us know. You can, like I said, you can reach out to us on our website, storehouseassets.com. There's a spot there you can reach out to us and we can look we'll back to you and let us know what, what else you want to hear us talk about. So thank you and have a great week. 
thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And together, we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.